Um, and it's been a journey, I think it's fair to say. Two weeks ago, um, if you missed it, Travis talked to us about what sin is and about what sin does. And sin, Travis said, is the accelerating deterioration of our proper humanity over time. Accelerating deterioration of our proper humanity over time. Which he, he, expl- he explored that by saying that we sense the good, right? That we sense what it might mean to be human to the fullest, um, to be the most loving and the most generous um, versions of ourselves, but that we can't consistently be that good. And that that's what sin is. And what sin does, Travis said, is destroy, that it leads to brokenness in our relationships in these four specific places, our relationships with each other, our relationship with God, our relationship with the world that we live in, and even our relationship with ourselves. And the ultimate end of all that brokenness is death. And then last week, we said uh, that the most essential belief of Christian faith the bedrock thing, is that for no other reason than that He is fully and truly who He is, God steps in to rescue us. God steps in. He resolves the sin problem by taking death onto Himself, and He creates a way for us to choose to rediscover our proper humanity by accepting His full identification with us through His Son, Jesus, and then the accompanying incorporation with Him made possible by, um, to use some, some big churchy words, right, made possible by the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it was, I know that's all complex, and hopefully last week made it a little clearer, but we're going to keep moving with that. And we call that stuff, we call this miracle that God does atonement or at-one-ment, because of God's love for us, because of His own commitment to the wholeness and the good of His own creation, what has been disconnected, right, and destined for destruction stands to be saved. Put differently, God has become what we are so that we can become what He is, which is to say that we can recover our proper humanity and the wholeness in our relationships in those four directions, with Him and with each other and with the world and with ourselves, the relationships that we are, in fact, made for. And last week, we kind of closed by saying this is an enormous thing to believe. And we ended on a little bit of a a cliffhanger of sorts, although I did my best last week to summarize all these things. Well, I did my best to summarize them. I don't think, as I reflected on last week, that I made a very compelling case for why you should believe these things. My hope is that we can do a better job of that today. And so our goal as we're wrapping up is to answer two lingering questions in this study of sin and atonement. And those questions are first, how can we trust that this really works? And the second, and how is how does believing any of this change things right now? How can we trust it really works? And how does believing any of this change things right now? And I tried to think of a lot of different stories and metaphors this week. I was like, oh, as soon as I realized that's what we had to talk about, I was like, oh, we were going to need an organizing metaphor. I know how this game is played. And I went through a bunch of stuff, and they were all bad. And so at the end of the day, 
I realize that if I'm going to speak from my own heart, right, which is a big part of what this whole morning is about, if I'm going to speak from my own heart, then I have to go with my heart. And my heart lives, my heart lives for road trips. I've been this way for 10 years now. I didn't grow up this way, um, but I became this way about 10 years ago. Um, my first drive across the country happened in the summer of 2013. And I think that road trips end up making for a pretty good way of illustrating Christian life for a few specific reasons. The first is this. On any road trip, there is always at the outset an element of blind trust. You can have a great plan, but ultimately you still have to put the car in drive and go. And once you do that, like who knows what's going to happen along the way car trouble, inclement weather, sickness, so many things on any trip can go wrong. If you've ever been on a trip, I'm sure that you have your own list of like the things that go wrong. In 2016, when my family and I uh, were in a car accident in rural Colorado, which is something that went wrong for us, we started that morning, the morning of our accident, we started a little late because we were at this national park and we had to wait on the visitor center of the park to open so our kids could turn in their junior ranger stuff and get their junior ranger badges. And all that took longer than we expected. And then after we, we left the park, right, um, our planned route that we had sort of like Google mapped out before we left on the trip had to change because this is Colorado in the summertime. There was a big wildfire, and so we had to take this big, like, two-hour detour. And then while we were on that detour in the middle of a place, I don't even know where, we just crossed some gorge. That's all I remember about it. But anyways, we had this, like, total blowout flat tire, and then we, like, had to find a phone, like, get to a place where there's cell service and call a tow truck, and they had to come tow us, and they towed us into the nearest town. And so that took forever. But then when we got to that town, like, we pulled, like, the tow truck pulled us into a tire shop, and they changed that tire in, like, shocking speed. Like, we were in and out of the tire shop in eight minutes. It was the wildest experience. And so all of that stuff's happening. And then a few hours later, after we left the tire shop, we were T-boned in an intersection just before we got on the interstate. Like so many things had to happen in exactly the way they happened to get us to that intersection in that moment when that accident occurred. It's dizzying to think about. And when you set out on any sort of journey, you are at the mercy of things it's impossible to predict. And our Christian journeys, it turns out, works much the same way. For everyone who chooses this faith, no amount of preparation or research or books that you read can tell you everything that is going to happen when you're on this road. And it's ultimately, it's ultimately a matter of not just trust, but a matter of hope, of hope. Because I think the question we have to ask ourselves at some point is this, do you long for the destination no matter what the cost turns out to be? Is going there better than staying here? Consider the, choice, the choices of those first disciples, right, who were fishermen at their nets when Jesus found them. Is the hope that's embodied by this man that you don't yet fully know worth leaving your boat for? On that front, the second thing about road trips that I think can help us understand Christian life is this. They are always, always about progressively letting go. Progressively letting go. Not all at once, but progressively. This 
As a matter of fact, it's why I like driving more than I like flying, because when you fly, I think part of the problem is that you can kind of trick yourself into believing that there wasn't really a journey, right? Like you, you wake up, you go to the airport, you get on this plane, yada, 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 you take a nap, and then you're at your destination. I started the day in Maryland. I ended in Claire and Robert's case in Puerto Rico the other day. Now, drivers, though, if you've ever done a long drive, like you know differently. You know the truth. At any point when you're driving, you can stop. At any point, you can even turn around and go back where you came from. And this makes, when you're driving on a road trip, makes each mile you cover an exercise in letting go of where you've been. Now, I like this point as a metaphor for Christian life because I grew up in a church that talked about Jesus the same way I just talked about flying. Faith did something radical instantaneously. I was a dead sinner, and then now I'm washed in the blood, and I'm a new man. And there is, I'll admit, there is some soteriological truth to that. But thinking of things that way did a lot of harm to me growing up, I think. Why? Well, well, because the day after my baptism, when I was seven, which was a little ridiculous in a lot of ways, but the day after my baptism, I, I didn't feel like I was fully changed. I wasn't a proper human yet. I was seven, so I wasn't a proper human yet in a whole bunch of different ways. But even in the ways that, I, that had led me to want to be baptized, there's still... Like, the work wasn't done. I still felt the same draws to isolation, right, that we feel. I still felt the same draw to sin in the way that I understood it at that age. And all of that made me wonder when I woke up the next morning and felt mostly the same, it made me wonder if that salvation had stuck. And then I spent years growing up, like, trying it over and over again. Some of you may have had that experience in the churches you grew up in. Like, I'll just, let's, let's give it another go. What I've learned since then is that living out my faith is something that I do, in fact, one hard mile at a time. I know that in the end, to get where I'm trying to go, I have to eventually lay absolutely everything about my life down before God. Everything. I know that it will cost me everything. My habits. It'll cost me my will. It'll cost me my relationships. I'll have to lay my relationships down as well. I have to lay my insecurities down. Even my strengths have to be laid down at the end of the day. But I think what's important is to recognize that I don't have to do all of that at once, and I don't have to do that without help. Jesus tells us that when we follow Him, we become, we become home to the very Spirit of God. That that's the thing that actually changes. Well, a couple things changed. It seemed. <laughs> Boy, that's just a whole, whole thing that just happened there. All right, sorry, Sarah. We're left with. We're just gonna. Oh my goodness. Woo. Well, we probably can, but I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep moving for a minute, and then we'll. Try. <laughs> Anyway, she let go one mile at a time. That's kind of where we're headed with all this. <laughs> I have to let go of my lectern. Yes. 
Where I was going is I was saying we don't do it alone. And we don't do it alone because we become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit within us is what guides us towards progressively letting go. That's what we're actually trusting with that work. Romans 8.26 puts it like this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us, not in our strength, but in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought in relate. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I feel like all the humor of the last minute here is like killed, like something that I meant to, to make very serious when I got here, but we're just going to have to roll with it. So pretend this is all very serious. Good. Hey, wait, thank you, Sarah. It was, it was actually flipped wrong, so it, it oh. wasn't your fault that it broke. Oh. It was going to break. It's not my fault. <laughs> I feel like if you're holding it when it breaks, it's sort of your fault. Here's the thing I wanted to share this morning cornerstone of our vision here at Revolution. We believe that there is nothing about us, not one thing about any one of us that is off limits to God's conviction and His transforming love. And if you're going to pursue this faith, it's going to mean putting everything down. And we also believe that we can trust God to carry us through that process of letting go with steadfastness, and with grace. And so, we don't preach sermons about this dire sin or about that dire sin. You may have noticed, but we don't do that for a reason. Instead, what we preach and teach and encourage in small groups and other places is we want to encourage each other to listen with more and more openness to what the Holy Spirit is actually asking you to change. The point isn't for me to sort of condemn the sin of the week here. The point is for me to be one, one person in a community of people who are constantly pushing each other to lay more and more of who we are down, not because we're scared of what's going to happen if we don't, but because we trust, we trust the God that's leading us through that process. So how do you know if you're getting anywhere? The third part of this metaphor about road trips, which is where we started, the third part of this metaphor is that the measure of success on any road trip is always relational. It's always relational. This past summer, I had a goal on our, on our weekly family, or weekly, oh, if only, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip, um, on our annual family vacation. <clears throat> I was really burned out at the time. We left last August. It was a particularly hard season for me. Um, I was burned out. I was really distracted. And I was worried that it would take me half of the trip. Maybe you've been in this spot. But it would take me half of the trip just to unwind enough to be present with my family. And I only had so many days. And I was, like, really stressed about that. I'm like, I'm going to waste half of these days, like, just still being a hot mess. Like, I'm not even going to enjoy anything. I perseverated about it before we left. But on that first night of the vacation, I stayed awake. We got to our hotel, we flew, which was a bummer, but we got a car when we were there, so we still put a couple thousand miles in, so don't sweat, but like, we did fly, we cheated. Anyways, we got to this hotel, we lost luggage on the plane, as, you know, unexpected things happen. And we were at this hotel by the airport, and I stayed up, and I prayed, and God showed me something. He showed me, he showed me that I was fixating on my own experience. And I had four other people with me. 
And I was so worried about whether or not I would eventually be present that I was in that worry making myself absent. And so the next morning, I still felt stressed, I still felt burned out, but I tried to just look at the people in the car with me, to just listen to them. And at the end, I got to where I was trying to go with that vacation a lot faster than I thought I would. I think road trips succeed when the towers that we tend to lock ourselves in in our normal life were at home when those towers crumble down. When I used to take high school seniors on road trips across the country, we would talk about this as the break day. That like everybody, every student, no matter how like cool they were, at some point over the trip would have like their break day. And they'd be like kind of a hot mess. I think it was actually kind of psychologically damaging for a little bit, like for folks. But they would reach some point, day four, five, six, when they were like, you could tell they like they just cracked, man. Like they they cracked. And that's scary, but it's good. It's good because the tower that they had locked themselves in when they were trying to like posture for their friends and they were trying to like be this cool young person, that thing crumbled down. And when that happens, we're able to simply let ourselves be with each other, to just be. When once we accept ourselves, we accept our own messiness, we can just share the experience of the world, which is what we're out there for. We can share that with each other honestly. And I think that for me anyways, that's what I'm chasing when I actually go out to big places in, in nature, like national parks, which are a passion of mine. I just want to feel wonder. And for me, feeling that wonder oftentimes takes leaving home. It always takes letting go. And it also always takes accepting that the real hope for humans struggling to be proper humans is in the restoration of relationships, not just trying to avoid going to some bad place, but being proper humans in those four ways we talked about, those four relationships we talked about. But even if that's what the journey looks like, right, if it looks like a road trip and that it involves like taking these steps of faith, letting go progressively, and hoping for restoration in our relationships, there's still the big question about whether or not atonement really works. Does it work? And I'll say this. If we think that the only goal is escaping death, then we're missing the point. I also think that we're seeing death the wrong way. After all, is death something that only happens at the end of our lives, or is it something that's in the process of happening all the time? My increasing conviction is that dying is the easiest thing in the world to do. Without a radical transformation, we choose it bit by bit every day. And I'm also increasingly convinced that real life works the same way, that atonement isn't just a saving act, that atonement is a way of living. That God has worked this miracle that gets us out the door and on the road, and then we keep accepting that miracle every day. And we allow it to work on us. And we allow it to, to change the way we see the world and the way we see others. We go on a journey of atonement. Not, and I want to be careful here because this is a place you can get into some like heresy weeds, so I'm going to be real precise. I'm not saying that what God has done is incomplete. What I am saying is that we are incomplete, and it's the journey of our lifetime, however long that may be, to deeply trust the place God's trying to take us, to live out atonement by traveling towards real personhood. Paul puts it this way 
In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God, when we trust him, what we're trusting is that he will see this process through. But there's another thing in that verse that we sometimes skip, and that is that Paul isn't just writing this letter to one Christian, he's writing this letter to a whole church of them. The you in that verse is plural. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Now, I said at the start that there are two key questions as we close the series. One is, how can we trust that any of this really works, and how does believing it change things right now? Well, I think we can trust that it works because we feel transformation internally over time as we learn to let go of our brokenness, which we tend to cling to, and accept this new life that God is breathing into us. That that takes time, but we feel that change inside of ourselves. That's what I've been trying to talk about so far this morning. But the way atonement changes things for us right now is communal. We feel it and trust it personally. It changes things communally. And I mean this in a pretty radical sense, I've got to say. Your internal transformation is catastrophically stunted if it doesn't lead to communal transformation. That was a big sentence, so I'll say it again. Your internal transformation is catastrophically stunted if it doesn't lead to communal transformation. The reason is because being proper humans means, it must mean, living in restored relationships with God, with others, with the world, and with ourselves. Now, I want to acknowledge that this last 10 minutes here today is deeply indebted to a book by Scott McKnight titled A Community Called Atonement. I also stole the, the title of the sermon from this book's title. And I strongly encourage you to read it if you're into this sort of thing. I read it last year in seminary, and few books have impacted my thinking about faith more than this one has. And McKnight's key observation is this. He says that atonement is something done not only by God for us, but also something we do with God for others. It's a bold thing for him to say. And there are a lot of caveats there if you're a little anxious about it. He argues that we aren't intended to simply be passive recipients of God's grace, like cherished objects that God intends to keep on some heavenly shelf once we're put back together. That what we're intended for, what we were created for, is to be active agents who joyfully participate with Him in His redemptive work. This, to use a technical term, is called atonement as praxis. And McKnight is clear that what he is not saying is that we, in any sense, can do atonement. We can't for others or for ourselves. We don't make it happen for us. We don't make it happen for anybody else in the same way that miraculous, the same miraculous way that God does it. Atonement is God's work. Rather, what he's saying, and what I'm saying too, is that proper humans are meant for work in God's kingdom. That's what proper humans are meant for. And that work starts here in the places where God's kingdom is breaking through in this world that we live in. McKnight takes as his mission statement these verses from Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthian church, where he writes this, 
All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now we see a few critical things here. First, we're reminded that God is communal himself, and it is his Trinitarian being which enacts this work of reconciliation. God the Father loves and calls us. God the Son ransoms believers from sin and death, and then God the Spirit makes believers holy and equips them for that good work. And in Paul's language, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so what does that ministry include? What is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, reconciliation here is at one with God, others, the world, and with ourselves. That's what, he, that's what is started in us when we accept God's rescue, and it's what we participate in on this metaphorical road trip. Because Atonement is about restoring community. The ministry of reconciliation works in those same directions. God's Spirit lives in us and draws us into loving fellowship with one another so that our love for each other becomes a light for a world where love can be hard to believe in. A loving community is the first step of building a community of atonement. And this this is all over the early letters of the early church. One verse that stands out is from 1 Peter. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. But we could quote 50 verses from the New Testament that say just this thing. It is the vision of the early church to be utterly marked by mutual affection. And this more than anything else, is the commitment of the first apostolic leaders of our faith as the church is multiplying and spreading, is keeping people's love for each other intact, that mutual affection, keeping it alive at the center of these communities. Excuse me. It therefore, if that's all true, it therefore must also, that mutual affection must also be a mark for us right now as a church community. We have to love each other. It has the love for people. This, this group of people in this room, the love between us must be unmissable for others. We have to actually spend time together, not just here on Sunday mornings, but in our day-to-day -day lives too. One of the things that I'm most grateful for when I think over the last three years and all the difficulties we've been through as a church is that in the midst of all this mess, I think we discovered trust with each other. I was new to this job when the pandemic started. I'd been lead pastor for just over a year. When we stopped meeting in person, when the leadership team and I made hard decisions about our plans for persevering in that season and how we could continue, how we could best continue in any kind of ministry of reconciliation during that time, I worried that the folks at Revolution, the folks in this church, wouldn't stick it out um, if we couldn't keep the habits of church going. 
But at the same time that I felt like, oh, if we don't keep the habit up, everything's going to fall apart. I remember having conversations with pastors at that time where they were like, four weeks is the most we could bear. Like, if we're done, if we're gone for more than a month, like, no one's coming back. It was a real worry. I remember I felt like such a bold person because I was like, it's going to be eight. <laughs> you guys don't even know. It's going to be eight for sure. Anyways, I worried that if the ha- I, like everybody else, worried that if we broke the habit, that we wouldn't stick it out. But at the same time, I felt strongly, and I still feel strongly, that if a habit is all that's keeping you in a community, there's not really much of a community. Now, the hard fact is that lots of folks did leave our community during this period of time. But it's also true that a lot of folks stayed. And we picked each other up over the last three years. We checked in with each other. We picnicked on Sunday afternoons. We prayed for each other. We met together when it was safe to do so. And although I started that season worried that folks wouldn't keep trusting me because I'm a narcissist, so of course that's all I worried about. Would you guys trust me? I left that season discovering that I should have had more trust in a lot of you. And the truth of the matter is that I love the people of this church deeply. And more than that, I believe very deeply now that we're not just Sunday morning friends. I believe there is a mutual love in this community. And I believe that mutual love is made possible by our shared faith and that it keeps us together. But here we are, hopefully on the far side of this pandemic. And this is the thing, right? Mutual love internally in the church isn't the mission of the Christian church or the Christian faith any more than camaraderie is the destination of a road trip. What's present here is still meant to go somewhere. This is the second part of McKnight's argument. He says that a church should be a community of ambassadors for reconciliation that we are God's image bearers in the world, and by living out atonement together, we say with one voice to our neighbors, the God who created you wants you to be made whole again. He wants it so badly that he died for it, and we want it so badly that we will follow him down that road because we love you. And every church has to figure out what this means in its own community. But it has to start here. We have to believe, we have to believe that God loves our neighbors as much as he loves us. That he loves our neighbors as much as he loves us. And that that includes all of our neighbors, period. Poor ones and rich ones, free ones and incarcerated ones, homosexual ones and heterosexual ones, Republican ones and Democrat ones. I don't know which of these will be most controversial for you, but I gave you a a scattering. It's the transforming work going on within us that actually equips us for that kind of love. Because as that transforming thing is happening within us, we start to see as God sees, which means that we start to care in ways that we hadn't before about injustice And we have hope that broken things can be made whole again. 
and we follow in the example of the early church by facing a world that is skeptical of us in the same way that Jesus faced a world that was skeptical of him. And how did he face that, way, that world? He faced it by serving. He faced it by listening. We face it by feeding people who are hungry and sitting with people who are suffering. We forgive the debts that we're able to forgive and we pray for the forgiveness of the debts that we can't. And as though God were making his appeal to the world through us, we implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Which is a way of saying simply this, come on this road trip with us. It will mean leaving everything behind. But the destination is secure. And you won't be traveling alone. My prayer is that this year we will learn to be people of atonement as we discover wholeness with God in ourselves through practicing and learning more about discipleship. We will experience wholeness in our relationships with one another. and We will be emboldened to give everything that we have for wholeness on this earth, starting right here with the people all around us. I'm praying that the silos that we're all living in will break down We'll all have our, our break day. We'll let go of what holds us back. And we will continue to embrace each other. And together, that we will set out to love people, that we will set out to love all people for the simple fact and reason that they belong in God's kingdom.